Welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller, and we're doing something a little bit new in today's episode. Um, I'm speaking with both a dealer and her client about a piece that he recently bought from her. Um, there's, there's no question that the dealer-client relationship is right at the center of the entire world of collecting. Um, neither of them would exist without the other. So I'm excited to be speaking today with Jill Newhouse of Jill Newhouse Gallery. Um, she's a dealer in master drawings and paintings on Manhattan's Upper East Side, um, as well as her client, Ray Vickers. Now, Ray recently bought a piece from Jill, which is both beautiful and highly unusual. It's a painting, but rather than canvas or board or plaster, the medium is actually a, um, a wooden lunchbox. Uh, yeah, you heard me right. Uh, we'll get into exactly what that means. But the artist is Camille Corot, the great 19th century French painter uh, whose work is seen as, among other things, a, a precursor to Impressionism. Um, Jill is the person to talk with about Corot. She's currently at work uh, developing and, and updating a catalog resume of Corot's drawings. Um, and alongside her scholarship, Jill has bought and sold numerous works by Corot over the years, uh, including, of course, this box, which uh, was, as I said, recently purchased by Ray Vickers. Jill and Ray, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Now, I want to start by giving listeners a sense of exactly what we're talking about. And um, as always, you can see photos at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. But um, Jill, you know, a minute ago, I described this as a lunchbox. Um, <laughs> can you elaborate on that and, and uh, describe the box and, and the painting on it? Um, I will. I, I, it's interesting that art objects and paintings and drawings don't always come to us with full provenance information or the history of where they've been. And in this case, we were lucky enough to have that. So, and there's quite a story around uh, what is actually two boxes. One is um, a dark wood box measuring about eight by three and a half by four inches high. And there's a second box, which is six and a half by three and a half by three and a half inches high. So they're small. And they exist in the literature on Coro. And what we know about them is that they belong to a man named Alfred Robo, who was a French draftsman and printmaker who's really best known today as a art historian because he published printed and organized the catalog raisonné of the work of Delacroix in 1885 and, and of Coro, which was published in 1905. And these books are still considered the primary sources of, um, of authentication of, of research on these artists. So in the 1870s, Robo was living in northern France near a town called Arras, and Coro visited him there, and he... He painted there often. In fact, one of his best-known paintings of the period is uh, an 1871 landscape at, that's now in the collection of the National Gallery in London of this area called Arle du Nord. So in the literature, Robo tells a story that he had this dark brown, simple wooden box um, which was made for food um, in his kitchen, and Coro commented that he thought the box was really ugly. And he suggested that if Robo would exchange it for a new one, he, Coro, would decorate it in an appropriate fashion. Now, imagine 1871, Coro is at the height of his career. 
He's very well known. He's uh, successful. He sells his works. He's heavily faked by this point. Um, so he went to a local carpenter in Arleu and commissioned uh, a new box, which is the second box that we have, the smaller box. He uh, was very precise about the specifications of the size, apparently. And then on the inside of the lid, he painted a wonderful landscape, which is the, it's like the epitome of Coro's landscape art and style in the later years, all in this really three by five inch space. And the painting is fully signed. It shows a single tree in a windswept plain and two figures in the center lower left. One of them has a bright red hat on and um, it's fully signed at the right. And it's got this amazing rapid brushwork and um, this hazy and diffuse light that Coro became so well known for in his later years. It's like a little masterpiece. And uh, it's inside a box that was used for food, kept in the kitchen, apparently, of Robo. So um, Robo, when he was recording all of Coro's work, titled it Fraîcheur Matinale, which means the freshness of the morning, mm -hmm. um, and tells us that this is one of nine recorded objects that, in which Coral painted on something other than a traditional support, a canvas, or a, and one of them, he says, is uh, he painted something on the back of a plate, okay. um, on a cigar box, and even on his own silk hat. So really? this was really the artist having fun and um, the intimacy of, and the importance of the relationship between Coro and Robo cannot be understated. That's so, so it was amazing that the two boxes had stayed together, that they came down in a, uh, in a were inherited past generation to generation in a family in, in France. And um, they came up for auction in a, sale in Europe, and as I have been working on Coro for a long time, I was lucky enough to have colleagues call me, and we were able to buy it. So, very, very unusual object. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, it makes me wish I had uh, a friend like Coro to, to paint my lunchbox. <laughs> to paint your lunchbox, exactly. <laughs> no, it really is. It's it's quite a beautiful scene, and I want to emphasize for listeners, it's it's very small. I, I don't know if you'd quite call it a miniature. Um no, the actual painting size must be three by five inches or so, but um, the way Ray discovered it, in fact, was we sent an email out showing just the painting. And the, the amazing thing about emails is you can make things bigger than they really are, smaller than they really are. And this op the painting itself is amazingly complete, is very powerful. It when we Ray came and looked at it, we we looked at the box from across the room and you the painting carries amazingly. Yeah. So I'm, really, I'm looking across the room at it yeah, right it's now really and it keeps distracting my attention. Six by three inches in this very small box. Yeah. I, I, what was your Ray, what was your first sort of gut reaction when you saw it? Well as Jill said, I saw it on the website, which was I think announcing an extension of a show she was doing. <clears throat> and I immediately sent an email saying, can you tell me the price? Because I, I thought the image was just wonderful. It's uh, uh, that kind of late Corot, lots of energy. And, uh, and she said, well, you know, uh, in her 
returned, she said, you know, it, it's on a small box. <laughs> <laughs> and actually sent me a, a photo of, of it in the box. And I have to say, that didn't really put me off. I mean, I was, uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, I still thought it was a wonderful image, and I couldn't imagine, you know, not having it, frankly, yeah, at, uh, yeah. at that point. It's interesting, um, you know, the, the, to have a landscape scene in, in a box with a culinary purpose. You know, there, there's well, no sort of obvious connection I don't think, to I don't. It's, I think the connection is uh, Cora was a landscapist. Uh-huh. And um, probably the greatest, land. you could argue he's the greatest landscape painter of the 19th century. Um, he did do figure paintings, but I think that would be really small for, <laughs> right, right. for a figure. So, so put this in context for me. Say, you know, 1871, he's sort of at the height of his, his fame, his reputation. Um, give, give me a little more context here. What, what kinds of work is Corot producing at, at this period? You know, how does this fit into his sort of the arc of his, his biographies? Well, um, he started out, he was uh, born into a working class family. I think his father was a wig maker and his mother was a milliner, which is a good combination, I suppose. (laughs) And um, he was a bad student, was sent to boarding school, and he didn't come to to decide on a career as an artist until he was 26, which at at that point, um, you know, the 1820s, that's, that was Half not your life what one was did. Already. Yeah, that was practically middle-aged, I think. So, um, and he apprenticed to two painters, one named Michelon, another Bertin, very traditional neoclassical artists. And what he proceeded to do uh, in his career is take those very formal, structured landscapes that were being painted, and he loosened them up and loosened the brushwork and made them more spontaneous. And his trajectory leads directly into what we would identify as Impressionism, So, um, which really is a kind of realism because it's trying to capture the fleetingness of the, of the landscape. And even in this little painting, what you, the sense you get is of the wind blowing across a, a field. So Bakura was very, uh, two early trips to Italy that changed his career dramatically, but he mostly worked in and, in and around France, drew constantly, sketched, uh, did a lot of oil sketching on um, paper, which was then mounted to canvas. So um, sometimes on panel, but predominantly on canvas. So uh, very much a constant draftsman, constant painter. So the speed of his brushwork um, is very evident in this late work, and and the later works have this kind of diffuseness to the to the picture surface. So um, now you say he, he mostly painted on canvas. Mostly um, on canvas, yeah. W- w- what differences um, do you think the, the this change in medium? Might well, he have? painted a lot on paper too, which I I think might have had a practical aspect in the sense that um, you know for an artist as prolific as Coro was. Um, you were probably forever running out of canvas and paper mm, and, mm-hmm. and all different mediums. But um, there's a certain reaction that the um, canvas has a certain give when the brush hits it that uh, would be different in paper. Right, right. Uh, but what we see on this box, being able to reduce a landscape to a 3 by 5 inch surface like that, 
um, shows an artist at the height of his career. Yeah. He just knows exactly where each brushwork, each stroke of the brush goes, and, and it explains what you're seeing without literally translating it, which is what um, the neoclassical school that preceded him was more inclined to do. Um, so this is a kind of impressionism. He's making you feel the landscape that you're looking at. Yeah. So Ray, I you know I want to turn to your experience of the box and um, and in surface of that, can can you give us a little bit of context about your own um, collecting? Uh, and, and and maybe the first question to ask is whether you even consider yourself a collector. Yeah, that that's always a difficult question. Uh, it seems like a I don't know, a, a kind of a highfalutin term, but after a number of years of purchasing objects and having a great many of them around our apartment, I guess that term is probably accurate at this point. Right. Um, I mean, we began here in New York in the 70s really buying uh, Japanese art, uh, and that really uh, started after a trip to Japan in the, in the uh, early 70s. And then in the late 70s, we actually moved to Asia uh-huh. uh, and then spent the next 18 years there, uh, mostly in Hong Kong, but two years in, in Tokyo. So we were exposed to both uh, Japanese and Chinese art in a, in a very big way. And that was our, that was our principal area of, uh, of collecting for, for many years. At the same time, we had <clears throat> a good friend as a, a dealer, whose interests were quite eclectic. And he would, uh, from time to time, show us other things that he had collected. And then sometimes uh, we would buy some of those, African art, uh, pre-dynastic Egyptian uh, stone items. Most of those now have have been sold over the years, uh, really to purchase other things. Okay, as your interests have have evolved. Things have changed and, and... and to a certain extent, uh, environments have changed. Uh, some things look very good in a certain uh, house or apartment. Um, and my wife and I have moved many times over those years. <laughs> it's, uh, um, so then uh, when we came back to the U.S., uh, we had, in the meantime, purchased a house in France as a second home. And uh, we had that for 20-some years. And so that really re-stimulated our interest in Western art. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, uh, we started looking at, uh, at items both in Japanese and not so much Chinese, and in Western art again. So this is uh, it's why um, we got to know Jill was through when we moved back to New York and we had a, an introduction to her in the gallery. And we started really uh, looking at things uh, through her eyes, right? And it's been a you know a very good. Uh, this is this is really just the latest of a number of acquisitions we've made from Jill. That um, have quite a range to them too. Some contemporary things and yes, nineteenth century things. Yes, I think it's been interesting. I mean, uh, Jill in her gallery almost always has a few contemporary artists that uh, uh, she's uh, showing and. Uh, it's interesting because one one of the things is that uh, they are affordable uh, for the most part, um, and you know it's a, it's a different look. And I should say one one of the things about our uh, approach is that uh, 
we have a very flexible display system in our various apartments over the years, and we do here in New York now. And as a consequence, we, we tend to um, put things up for a short period of time, a month, two months, three months, and then change Rotate in and out. And rotate things around. Uh, we sort of got into that habit in Asia because that's the style there with Japanese art. You know, you, when you have hanging scrolls and whatnot, you put them up for a while and then change them out. And we do that here with, uh, also with Western art. And, and it's fun, actually, to try to put, say, an Asian type of painting next to, uh, say, a Nabi painting mm. and look at the colors and how they, how they talk to each other. Not to suggest that one is, was influenced by the other, but rather to see how people at relatively the same period would have approached objects on other parts, you know, on opposite parts of the, of the, the world. Yeah, it's and, interesting. I mean, it's a theme that you hear more and more about these days, even in the, the decorative arts world. You know, people decorating apartments with sort of eclectic objects, you know, putting, uh, instead of trying to put like with like, uh, putting like with very much unlike, uh, even even in some cases, total opposite. Um, and and the way you describe the trajectory of your of your collecting, you know, you're not a uh, focused collector of 19th century French painting. You've been a collector of a number of different genres, a number of different, I mean, periods from millennia past. Um, so I can imagine you have a bit of a more, uh, could I call it a holistic uh, idea of the kinds of, of art objects that you enjoy? Yeah, and it's for, I would say, for us, and I think everybody who buys art goes about it differently, but for us, it's been a question of what's been on offer. I mean, we haven't decided that certain areas were, were what was our, that it was our taste or whatever, and then gone out and sought those. We really allowed the dealers to to suggest what they find to be of interest. Now, you said you, you saw the box uh, on Jill's website, yeah. and you immediately called her about it. Um, so there was something about the, and this was before you even knew it was on a box. So it was something about the, um, the painting itself that attracted you. And then when you found out that it was a box, um, you, you mentioned to me that this connected in a way to, to some other objects that you've collected. Tell, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, the, um, well, first of all, as I say, as, as we've talked about, as Jill has mentioned far better than I can, the image is really quite remarkable. And that's what really uh, first caught my eye. Um, when she said it was a box, uh, that didn't really put me off because it fits within an area of collecting that, uh, that most Asian and Chinese, uh, Asian Japanese collectors would be familiar with, which are called scholar's objects. These are objects which would have been on the desk of a 17th, 18th, 19th century scholar. So that is someone specializing in calligraphy or ink painting. Uh, these would have been brush pots where he kept his brush made of precious woods. It uh, might have been an armrest which they used to rest their arm while they were writing or drawing with the brush. Also, they would include inkstones. Now, an inkstone is a slab of slate-like material, and you take uh, an ink stick, which is a congealed soot, 
in a sort of water-soluble glue and you rub it on the stone with water and it produces black ink. These come in all shapes and sizes, but I have one in, in, in my collection which is a, a made from a discarded roof tile of a very famous uh, a gate to a temple in Kyoto. Um, so it has some of the same aspects of the box. I mean, it's got a, a written provenance, uh, explains where it came from. It's a household daily object, something you'd have on your desk. So I look forward to a time when I can have both my inkstone <laughs> and this box sitting on the desk is perhaps I uh, uh, write an email to uh, Jill to ask her <laughs> what's, what's going on with this new thing that I saw on her site. That's a great picture. Yeah. We'll be right back with Jill Newhouse and Ray Vickers. First, just a reminder that you can see images of the painting and the box it's painted on at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast and on my Instagram at Objective Interest. If you enjoy curious objects and want to support the podcast, I'm thrilled to hear it. One thing that would be really helpful is if you could leave a rating and a review on the app where you're listening right now. And if you haven't done it already, subscribe to the podcast so you can hear episodes as soon as they're published. Thank you so much. So I'm interested in um, in the sort of the inception of the purchase for you. Um, you know, I've talked with a lot of dealers on this program. I've talked with some collectors as well, but I've never had a dealer and a collector in the same room talking about an object that they've exchanged. Um, and, and it's a sign of the, the art world that I think people on the, who, who haven't experienced it firsthand may not have a very good sense for, for how exactly that, that process happens. And I know it's different for different people, but, but for the two of you, um, you know, Ray, you, you called Jill when you saw the piece on, on her website and that started the conversation. How did that sort of proceed? How did it proceed from that point to the point of deciding to make the purchase? Well, of course, the inquiry I made was principally about the price. Mm-hmm. Um, to, you know, put it into a context that, of, of, of purchasing. And did you have a, a idea or a prediction based on your own experience of what you how much you expected it to cost, or were you really sort of out of the blue... Um, you know, just just uh, wondering what what on earth it, you know whether it might even be a, within your your budget at all. Yeah. Um, well, Coro has has produced some other small things, not in a box, but small things, and and and. Uh, um, and you'd bought a Coro drawing. Drawing. I have a early from me. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is an earlier one, very linear and stuff. And I knew it was small. That was said. I didn't know it was inside a wooden box, but I knew it was small. So I figured um, it would might well be within uh, a range I was willing to, to think about. Now, for me, maybe not for a lot of people, but for, for us, I mean, each of these things has not just a cost, but it has an opportunity cost, because it means if I buy that, it means I'm probably not going to buy able to buy some other things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that Jill and I discussed quite openly and frankly was other things that she might have uh, that I might purchase in lieu of this if I didn't do that. And that was a very interesting conversation because it involves not just prices but kind of relative aesthetic values as well. I mean, do you get as much 
enjoyment out of this object as that one. And that yeah. was a, and I think that's really how we zeroed in on it, was, uh, was looking around and, and deciding, uh, which puts both a, uh, a monetary context around it, but also an aesthetic one as well. Right. And so much that it, what's so interesting as a dealer is is that um, who decides to buy what, and it, it is often not a judgment of the quality. It's more uh, a question of each individual person, their aesthetics, their lifestyle, and what they'd like to have at home with them. So, and the wonderful thing about Ray and Priscilla is they've always, in all the years we've known each other they're incredibly open-minded aesthetically and that's something that appeals to me greatly the idea of mixing japanese art with western art um, drawings with paintings and even the idea that they rotate what they're looking at is is so interesting it's it they have an independence and a surety of of what they like and and what they want to own that that's pretty rare really Um, so, I mean, we built up a long relationship over the years and, and discuss things and trust each other, but, um, it really comes, which is the basis of any relationship, uh, in the art world between dealer, client, um, and, uh, but they always had a kind of broad, open mindedness, which, which, fits with my point of view because there I have a lot of different kinds of things in the gallery that I've shown from at different moments from contemporary to to uh, earlier things and this kind of object as you called it goes well with your scholars objects because just for the sake of the people listening the box is closed you need to open the box and then in the inside lid is where you see the little painting so it's almost like a little secret world that you can open or not. You could you could display it with the lid open so the painting is visible, or you could display it closed. So, um, and it's not going to appeal to everyone. You know, um, I fell in love with it. I think Ray did too. And it's um, you know, it's each object has its home, and that's yeah. the trick about having a gallery. Is you you hope that people. Uh, fall in love with the things you show the way you have. Yeah. I I want to come back in just a minute to the sort of eccentricity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But while we're on on this subject, is there, um, I mean, a a dealer obviously wants to make a sale. That's Mm -hmm. how you stay in business. A dealer also, we hope in in the best of all possible worlds, is really trying to develop, as you say, a long-term relationship, a relationship based on trust um, with their clients. How do you adjudicate those interests when Ray calls you up and says he's interested in this piece and you know it's a piece that might have a a sort of appeal to a particular kind of person or a person with a particular kind of interest? How do you decide whether, you know, this is the the thing that you you want to sort of promote or uh, whether to encourage your clients to think about other options how do you sort of, you know, clients have interests, but dealers also have, a, a, I mean, they're professional persuaders. So how do you sort of um, 
uh, navigate never that. Never thought of myself as a professional <laughs> persuader, but um, anyway, um, well, in most cases, in art of the period that I show, and even the contemporary art, the little bit that I show, I find things that I think are good, and then I hope that the people that I know will agree with me by by purchasing something. Yeah. Um, if you're asking, you know, when Ray was interested in this box, I was thrilled because we have a long relationship. I understand his taste a bit. Um, I would rather it went there than yeah. went to someone I was less involved with, although it's always nice to make new clients as well. So... Um, I don't know, yeah, does that yeah. answer where you were going with that? Yeah, I'm, yeah, no, I'm just trying to sort of explore this notion, this sort of, and I encounter this as a dealer um, myself with, with some regularity, which is, uh, you know, we, we the, the, the firm where I work is um, about 100 years old and prides itself on its relationships, long-term relationships with, with clients. Um, and we like to think, in many cases, we know our clients' interests, and that sometimes guides our purchasing decisions as well. If we know that there are one or two people on our mailing list who have a, a keen interest in this kind of object, we're much more likely to to want to buy it or or you know bid it higher at an auction, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, but not everybody can buy everything all the time. Right. Well, no, as timing is a lot of it too. I mean, Ray wasn't always in New York all the time, and this would have been a tough one to buy sight unseen, I have to yeah, say. Yeah. And then also, everyone is not in a buying mood all the time. And we have different objects here. And But I, I have to say, one of the, after 40 years in business, one of the biggest mysteries is why, who is, why a certain person buys a certain object. I mean, some of it is slightly predictable, but when we put up a show or a catalog, there's always a surprising connection mm. to someone that, that we maybe wouldn't have thought of. Obviously, um, there are certain things I know if I get them, I would call Ray. Or, um, But this, I didn't really know, think that you would be interested in this. I mean, I'm sure you would be interested because it's interesting. Right. But uh, to buy it, I wouldn't have known that, really. Yeah, I have a Corot drawing, and I, I've, I've looked at a number of Corot things with Jill, never having uh, purchased them. But we have, there are a couple of artists uh, that she knows that I, I now have a, didn't really start with the idea, but now have three or four of them. One might even say a little collection of, <clears throat> um, and I think if she were to find a, a nice drawing of one of these, or I, I would probably get a call. Um but on the other hand, then I, I might not be in the mood for yeah. the artist at that point. You never know. Sure. I mean, um, and, and you've talked already about um, buying things and then later deciding to sell them and move on to, to something else. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that that's, uh, you know, unrealistically, I thought when I really started this back in the 70s that I would never own more than 10 things. Hmm. Just, and I would always sell, dispose somehow. And, and, I, and keep the quality. Well, that's that left the barn a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, you've blown past well, that. But the lovely thing about the way you, where you collect is you see something and you do think, 
you take it independently, but then you think, well, how does this fit with what else I've got? And you're making all these mini exhibitions of the objects you have at home. And, and so it keeps a very open mind on your part, which is, which is great. Well, I always found, I mean, and when we started out, um, it really was always trying to buy the best, the best object I could that I could afford. Not necessarily in the genre that I already had, but yeah. but just if something again, as I say, I I didn't go looking. Dealers, I've been very lucky. Jill, another friend that she knows, uh, very good dealers who have brought things uh, or sent whatever uh, information about things, uh, and have permitted uh, one to pick and choose, you know, and not get annoyed if you say, yeah, well, thanks very much, but no thanks this time. A minute ago, Jill, you you mentioned this sort of, uh, I don't know if you use the word eccentricity, I think maybe I did, but um, <laughs> this sort of unusual uh, feature of the painting being on the inside of the box, um, which you said was maybe not a feature that everyone would, would enjoy right, or, or right. find to be a, a, an advantage. How does the market, do you think, treat a, a piece like that, which for some people might be a, a turnoff, but for others, you know, there's there's really a kind of a charm and a, a personal intimacy to it that might be appealing, mm -hmm, right. maybe even more appealing, but only to a smaller group of people. What what kind of influence do you think that has on, on the value of the piece? You know, so an object like this is really very hard to value in any kind of um, rational way, I would say. Uh -huh. Um, I would also say the market for Koro paintings is erratic because of the problems of how heavily faked he was and um, because of how prolific he was. So any artist like Renoir, any artist that produced that many works, they're going to be uh, there's going to be a big swing in the quality. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I think that this box, and tell me if you agree, Ray, it's the kind of, I bought it up to a level where I felt just on instinct would be too much if I paid more, and um, really, for a little commission, was happy to pass it along to Ray. It's it's a very indefinable thing. I don't know if Scholars Rocks have a steadier. No, I mean I think again these are are so individual. For me, one of the real attractions though is the feeling that you're you're practically as close to the artist's hand as you can get. That's what I yeah. loved about and, it actually. Uh, that you yeah. can just envision him painting it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And somehow you can have a you know this didn't just wasn't on the easel in the in the studio for a week while he did this and that. I mean, this is something he sat down and and there is a really special quality for that of that for me. Um, and uh, but as to as to, of course, Jill knows the market in a way that I don't. But I, I just I found that it was. Uh, uh, I mean, if this were a sizable painting, I think it would be one of the really special Koro mm. uh, landscapes. If it had been done if, on an easel and if, it were four by six feet and right, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, it would be one of the big Bobby Dazzlers. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think there, on the other hand, um, because of its size, um, there, there are a few limitations you might impose on it. Uh, and, and, uh, so, uh, you know, it's interesting because if the if um, I had in the gallery a two by three foot coral oil painting from the late period, I don't think that would be your particular taste. Even though you loved it, I don't know that that would fall into your collecting category. And and really, my gallery started um, specializing in drawings, and that has, drawings have the same kind of intimacy that that appeals to both Ray and I about the object. You know. A drawing, after all, is as close as the artist can get to the paper with nothing in between. So um, I think that that probably that's a lot, lot of the appeal of it. Yeah. So there are definitely people who want um, large-scale, highly finished um, works for whom this would just seemed too small an item too or small too, and, and uh, too personal too rustic kind yeah of. yeah exactly uh, it's a, interesting I mean that's the that's the um, it's a taste it's a personal taste as well yeah, so yeah. and personal taste affects the market in that uh, when things come up for sale publicly I guess it depends how many people share a certain kind of taste over another kind of taste but um yeah. But you know, I mean, I'm uh, I'll carry my sandwiches to work in this, you know, it's a, <laughs> yes. in your in the box, in the lunchbox. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was intended for after yeah. all. These yeah. days moving from the bedroom to the living room. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, actually in that sense an intimate object to me makes much more sense in these moments where we're home you know, looking at what we own, what we're surrounded with, it's it's kind of a perfect moment mm. for now. So, actually, more similar to the 1870s when they didn't move around as much as we all came to move around. Well, also, you know, uh, it's interested me that uh, these, in a sense, what I'll call scholars' objects, uh, are have been popular in France with uh, the big politicians. I mean, if, they, if you, I don't know if you see a photograph of Jacques Chirac's desk, there, there will be a small African sculpture on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitterrand was much the same way. They always had these small little objects of aesthetic interest. I think here in the U.S. politicians, it's usually they might have something interesting, but it more is associated with U.S. history or or something uh, more prosaic uh, mm. and uh, and so I, and I think that's how I see this I mean if uh, this will look just wonderful to me on a <laughs> on a you know a, a desk otherwise identi- associated with uh, with uh, workspace uh, so it's it, it fits into many many categories. Mm. Now, maybe not for everybody, but certainly that, that's how it strikes me. Well, fortunately, it doesn't have to for everybody. <laughs> You're the one who bought it after all. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Well, I, I want to um, wrap things up here, but um, can, can I just sort of in closing, I mean, it's, it's 
quite a pleasure for me to see the, the two of you talking like this and um, hear a bit about how you're both relating to the object and <laughs> in, in your uh, own ways contributing to its ongoing story. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I sort of, we, we tend to think, I think some of us tend to think of the dealer-client relationship as a one-way street, but clearly, as you're showing right now, it really isn't. Um, you know, you, you uh, are, are both offering things to each other um, in terms of your, your knowledge, your experience, um, your learning. Um, so I, I just want to, as a sort of an open-ended question for, for both of you, ask, um, you know, what, what, what do you learn from each other? What have you learned from each other? Well, we both said the last time when you came to look at this that we just enjoy talking to each other about the artworks that Ray's eye on on what he sees in the gallery often uh, helps me see things that I may not have seen. And I, certainly seeing when I've been to their apartment, the the context that artwork is put in is is fascinating and it's the ability to share things that we both find visually and intellectually stimulating. So so it brings a lot. And actually, especially in these difficult times, it's so nice to have people in the gallery, like even doing this and Ray coming and seeing it and sharing those moments, which for me are the driving moments of having a gallery. It's having people in and talking about the art, whether they buy something or not, um, is, is really what makes me come to work every day. I think, too, you know, uh, again, as I say, everybody's different, but uh, I'm often first taken by the object. And then, then I want to learn about it. And the nice thing about Jill is that uh, if you, you say, I really like that, uh, but I don't quite understand it, she's perfectly happy to take all the time in the world to get out the books, show you where the, where the antecedents of it are, where it, another version of it might have appeared in a museum, to put it into a, you know, a broader context. Um, so that's a very important thing. I mean, that's a very important relationship to have. Yeah. Uh, now, I can go read books myself. <laughs> it's very nice to, to be able to be put onto the right path. For example, Robo. I, I, never, I had known about Robo, who was the... Uh, and, and Coro's friend, Coro's friend, and, and, and the, uh, cataloger. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and now I'll—I uh, know I'll have to be on the lookout for. for Hard her. to find out a lot about Robo, and what he did was he published these two catalog raisonnés, the Delacroix and Coro. So the, that's two amazing artists of the 19th century. The Coro volumes are four volumes. And in many cases, they did have some photography of the works, but uh, in many cases, Robo drew images of the paintings, measured them, and cataloged them. I mean, it was really an act of love. He, so he, um, without him, our scholarship on, on those two artists would be uh, in very rough shape. But that's the sort of thing that uh, I think that, that we share. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine actually working with a dealer who, with whom you didn't have that kind of relationship. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Um, Ray Vickers, Jill Newhouse, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben.
That's our show. Thanks for listening. I'll just sneak in one more reminder to leave a rating or write us a flattering review. Very much appreciated. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. Thank you.